Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife uh, Absite Review Series. Uh, today's topic is transplant. Uh, transplant's not a huge topic on the Absite, but you're guaranteed to get a couple questions, so it's definitely worth reviewing. We've tried to distill it down to the highest yield uh, as possible. We hope you're enjoying the podcast companion. If you haven't checked it out yet, check it out on Amazon. There's a link down below. Still time to get it in time for the Absite. There's also the electronic version, so you'll get it immediately. Uh, thank you all for all your support and good luck studying. Um, so I'm here with uh, Jason and Megana, and uh, Jason is going to take us through transplant. So take it away, Jason. All right, let's get right into it. So let's just go through some basics of transplant. So uh, 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 Megana, so we talk about warm ischemia time and cold ischemia time. What do we mean by that and why does it matter? So warm ischemia time is two periods. It's uh, prior to organ removal from the body when it's normothermic, and it's also the period after the cold preservation before reperfusion. Cold ischemia time is that period from the time of cooling the organ to removal from the cold preservation solution. Most importantly, though, is that reperfusion time. Um, so after cold ischemia, when the organ is revascularized, the majority of injury occurs during this time, and it's this ischemia reperfusion injury. Exactly. Yeah. So it's important to know that distinction between the warm and cold. But I think where the question is going to be is, is when does that ischemia reperfusion injury happen? And that's after cold ischemia time when the organ is revascularized. All right. So, Megan, we're going to stick with you on this one. So there's some different options for uh, for cold preservation of, of organs. And there's some different uh, preservation solutions. What are the different intracellular preservation solutions? And how do they so work? Uh, so there's three uh, solutions that are named and out there. One is called Eurocollins, one is called histidine, tryptophan, ketoglutarate, or HTK, and then the one that we hear about the most is the University of Wisconsin solution. Um, these all provide electrolytes that reduce cellular swelling during preservation time, um, and notably the University of Wisconsin solution, um, due to what it's composed of, allows extended preservation of both the liver and pancreas. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't see this showing up too much on the app side, the different preservation solutions, but it's good to have a general idea of how they work. And then, you know, there's also simple cold storage, which is which is more you know straightforward and less expensive. And then there's some different you know products out there for pulsatile machines, um, which uh, have been shown to lower the incidence of delayed graft function for kidneys. Um, uh, but just having a general idea of how uh, organs are preserved. So moving on, Kevin. Uh, during uh, organ procurement, aberrant anatomy is often encountered. What are some of the most common uh, aberrant uh, uh, anatomy that we need to know when talking about transplant? Yeah, Start so with the kidney. Yeah, so this is important both for transplant and kind of other specialties such as vascular when performing procedures on these organs. So for the kidney, you always want to look for multiple renal arteries. So you have to check that CT scan because that can uh, change how you reconstruct things and make the procedure more complicated. Uh, there's like, a, I think it's close to 10% of kidneys will have multiple renal arteries. Um, sometimes the uh, lower pole of the right renal artery will pass in front of the IVC rather than behind it. And then the other thing you have to look out for is a retroaortic left renal vein. Um, and this is especially important in vascular for when you're clamping the aorta. If there's a, you can cause massive bleeding um, from a retroaortic left renal vein by clamping the aorta and not recognizing that the renal vein is behind the aorta rather than anterior where it normally lies. 
perfect. Um, and, and I think the question is going to, that's going to show up is it going to be, what's the most common and, and for kidney it's multiple arteries, but if, yeah, absolutely. There's this other important uh, variants that you need to know about. Okay. Now how about liver? For the liver, for the liver there, uh, the most common is the aberrant right hepatic artery arising from the SMA. So rather than coming off the celiac as a branch of the celiac, uh, your right hepatic um, comes off the SMA. And this is important both in transplant and also in uh, just in doing a common bile duct exploration, et cetera, because you can damage that right hepatic artery if it's not uh, visualized appropriately. Or even a cholecystectomy. It's, it's important yeah. for even just your standard cholecystectomy. And that's a question that shows up a lot is what's the most common uh, uh, anatomic variant there? And it's the aberrant right hepatic artery. And where does it origin, originate from? The SMA. Okay, how about, uh, let's keep going. How about uh, uh, the aberrant anatomy of the pancreas? Yeah, for the pancreas, um, you know, it, it has multiple different embryologic uh, things that can happen. It could be an annular pancreas. You can have a pre-duodenal portal vein uh, rather than the portal vein being behind the duodenum. And then you can have a duplication of the portal vein. And actually, sometimes there's an absence of portal vein. Okay, so now we're going to talk about some uh, some different types of donors. Uh, so uh, we know there's living donors, there's brain-dead donors, and then there's circulatory determination of death donors. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a little bit. Uh, but let's let's start for uh, with just some living donors. Um, so uh, Megan, up. contraindications to organ donation for living donors. Uh, what are some absolute contraindications? So absolute contraindications um, are HIV and hepatitis infection, although if the recipient is positive, it is not a contraindication. Cirrhosis, active systemic infection with positive blood cultures, and then melanoma, even if it's indolent for many years, because this can end up showing up in organs and they can have mets that you don't know about. Yeah, good. And I would, I agree with you. I think that, you know, HIV historically has been a, an absolute contraindication, but more recently, um, especially for uh, renal transplants or the HIV, being an HIV positive donor to an HIV positive recipient um, um, uh, has become more common. Now, how about some uh, potential uh, contraindications? So potentially, if the donor has a UTI, um, if they have urosepsis, it's a contraindication. But if they just have a plain, simple UTI, they can still be a donor. Um, if they have low-grade visceral malignancies, it's a case-by-case -case basis whether or not they can be a donor. Um, they also can still be a donor if they have a low-grade brain tumor, such as a glioblastoma. And finally, if they have a history of abdominal surgery for a benign disease, they can still be a donor. Great. Uh, Kevin, so staying with living donors, so uh, living donor hepatectomy. Uh, so, you know, indications for uh, uh, transplant are the same as deceased donor transplant, but what are some contraindications for uh, a living donor uh, for liver? Yeah, so these patients generally have to be very healthy um, in order to give up, you know, half of their liver or however much it is. Um, so they, they can't have advanced cardiopulmonary disease. Uh, they can't have any primary liver pathology. They can't have any communicable infections or active or recent cancer histories. And then there's, of course, a lot of anatomic restraints. Uh, that has to be, you know, ideal situation because it's such a high-risk surgery donating your liver. So, um if, if there's multiple hepatic arteries, if there's aberrant biliary anatomy uh, or insufficient residual liver volume, all of these can be potential contraindications. Okay, great. And and along the lines of that anatomy, 
uh, for a living donor, what are some possible uh, living donor graphs? What segments do they, do, do right. they procure? Uh, so they can use the right lobe of the liver, which is segments five through seven. They can use the left lobe of the liver, which is two through four. Or sometimes they can just go with the left lateral, um, which is generally two and three. Uh, yeah. And so you you mentioned that. Uh, oh, perfect. That was great. So, But you mentioned that uh, these, these uh, donors have to be relatively healthy. What are some potential complications uh, for the donor? Um, so... They can get, uh, you know, infections. They have bile leaks, incisional hernias. Um, if they have a small residual liver volume, it can lead to liver failure, which is the, one of the most dreaded, obviously. And then there's any kind of vascular complications, whether it's thrombus in the IVC. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, some of these patients die. There's a multi-organ failure and death or risks of being a living donor. Exactly. So the complica- the complications uh, are, are real and can be um, uh, in- incredibly morbid. That's why you need a pretty healthy, healthy donor and they need to know what they're signing up for. Uh, how about follow-up for donors? Um, so generally daily labs for three to four days, um, and they'll get a post-op hepatic duplex. Um, and then if there's a concern for a leak, they may end up getting a HIDA scan, but otherwise uh, kind of routine outpatient follow-up once they're discharged. Great. So Megan, we're going to move on to a living donor nephrectomies or living donor, uh, uh, kidney donors. So when we're talking about uh, a living donor versus a deceased donor kidney transplant, what are the, the, the respective outcomes for those? So this is something where they do, I've seen questions on this, where um, living donors actually have improved outcomes. So uh, the recipient outcomes in both patient and graft survival are better with a living donor kidney. Uh, they also spend less time on the waiting list. And um, you can also, because of that less time on the waiting list, they can possibly have a preemptive transplant and avoid dialysis altogether. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. Those are th- that's a very testable question. I've seen that shown up uh, several times. Uh, so we talked a little bit about general contraindications. What about some contraindications for a living donor uh, uh, nephrectomy? So for nephrectomies, um, if they have active or an incompletely treated malignancy, if they have an active infection, um, especially for kidneys, if they have diabetes or uncontrolled hypertension, these would be absolute contraindications. There's also some relative contraindications. So if they have a chronic illness or poor functional status, they wouldn't be able to handle having a single kidney. If they have impaired renal function, obviously, recurrent uh, kidney stones. Um, If they have controlled hypertension, that's debatable. And then um, if they have a history of treated malignancy, Obviously, if they're ABO or HLA incompatible, and then another relative contraindication is pregnancy. Okay, great. And and how do you follow these patients, the, the, the donors? How do you follow these the donor patients postoperatively? So they actually have need uh, a little more follow up than the liver. So they get blood pressure, BMI, creatinine, uh, glomerular filtration rate, urine albumin, um, all checked at discharge or six weeks post op. And again, at six months, again, at one year, and then finally at two years follow-up. Perfect. And what are, how do you counsel these patients? What are some potential post-op complications to donating the kidney? So commonly for them, um, GI issues, getting constipation, um, there can be some bleeding complications or um, respiratory distress, and then um, the standard complications that are related to surgery and anesthesia. Great. Okay. So that's a quick run-through of 
of uh, living donors. Um, uh, so let's move on to that next category, which is that donation after brain death. First off, Kevin, uh, this is something you might run into when you're on, let's say your trauma rotation, but what are the diagnostic criteria for brain death? How do you pronounce somebody brain dead? Okay, so the diagnostic criteria for brain death. Um, so you need clinical or neuroimaging evidence of a CNS or central nervous system catastrophe. Uh, you have to, the biggest thing is you have to exclude complicating medical conditions. They can't have any drug intoxication. They have to be normothermic with a blood pressure systolic over 100. On a neuro exam, you'd have an absent motor response, an absent pupillary light reflex, no corneal reflex. Um, you have to check the oculovestibular reflex, the, the known as doll eye, um, a jaw jerk test. They can't have a gag, um, cough with tracheal suctioning, or the sucking and rooting reflexes, and they have to be apneic. Yeah, so they do talk about the apneic test. So yeah, absent of all your basically your brainstem reflexes, um, and then a you know, positive apneic test. Uh, so uh, we talk. So let's say now you have somebody that's brain dead, and you're trying to get them to transplant. Um, that can oftentimes be very difficult because these patients are a lot of times are very physiologically unstable. Uh, Megan, what are the common physiologic disturbances uh, seen in brain dead individuals that need to be aggressively managed um, as you're trying to bridge them to transplant? So for they obviously need to maintain their tissue perfusion so that their organs are retrievable and usable. Um, they can get hypernatremia, so correcting that hypernatremia is important. Uh, if they develop diabetes insipidus, that needs to be treated. Of course, maintaining their oxygenation and ventilation. Um, if you need to provide um, ionotropic support, that may be necessary. And then preventing hypothermia, which is all, again, to maintain the organs until retrieval. Yeah, I mean, you think, you know, the patient's brain dead, but they, they became, they actually become very, it becomes very labor intensive just to keep them, you know, in a, in a physiologic homeostasis to where uh, they'll, they'll be eligible to, to donate um, and, and getting them to that transplant can be very difficult. Okay, so uh, we talked about our living donor, we talked about our donation after brain death. Now we're going to move on to that third category called the donation after circulatory, circulatory determination of death. So, Kevin, uh, what are the criteria for donation after circulatory determination of death? Uh, yes, yeah, this is a little more complicated. These are uh, these are patients that have uh, no hope of viable recovery, many times a massive stroke, cardiac arrest, uh, multiple trauma, and the decision is made to withdraw life support. Um, and so they're expected to expire within 60 minutes of withdrawing this life support. Uh, so the organ can procurement can start two minutes after the patient is dead. Um, but if the patient doesn't expire after the removal of that support within 60 minutes, they are no longer an organ donor. Okay. Uh, well, how about outcomes? What do you know about outcomes uh, after donation um, uh, for, or after donation after brain death versus the uh, donation after circulatory, circulatory determination of death? Yeah. Interestingly for kidneys, uh, Donors after circulatory death have equivalent outcomes uh, to brain death donors, uh, but for livers, they've shown that uh, donors after circulatory death have a higher incidence of biliary complications. Great. Okay, Megan. So now we're we're ready to to go forward transplants. Uh, so what's important in the workup of the donor and the recipient uh, for a transplant? 
So they get an extensive workup in order to make sure that they match and to prevent rejection. So the first thing is performing the cross match, which is looking for preformed antibodies against the new organ. This is done by mixing the serum of the recipient with donor lymphocytes. If that's positive, they are at risk for hyperacute rejection, which we'll talk about later. And then if their cross match is okay, um, I guess, Jason, throw it back to you. How would you test for HLA mismatch? Okay, so for HLA mismatch, uh, you need the um, uh, a panel of, of reactive antibody uh, formed against recipient antibodies for HLA. And you get what the PRA. So if the PRA is uh, greater than 50%, that's a contraindication to transplant. So PRA greater than 50% contraindication to transplant. Um, Things that it can increase this are transfusions, uh, pregnancy, previous transplants, autoimmune diseases, um, and currently plasmapheresis is being investigated as a way to treat sensitized individuals prior to transplant. And I, I think this topic that we're discussing right here is a guaranteed question. Um, and specifically, I've seen on question banks and the tests, uh, the, how do you perform a cross match? And, um, and so it's really important to know that it's, you take the, mix the serum of the recipient with the donor lymphocytes. So you, and I think that's a very common question. Yeah, it shows up pretty often as well as the different types of rejection. Um, those, those are very testable things. So be sure you have those downs. Those are easy points to miss. Um, so, okay, let's move on to, uh, liver transplantation. So. When we talk about liver transplantation, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about MELD score. So, uh, Kevin, what are the components of a MELD score, and what's the minimum score you need to be considered for liver transplantation? So, uh, its components is INR, bilirubin, and creatinine. Uh, 15 is the minimum score. Um, and then uh, you refer to a hepatologist to get them kind of on the transplant list once they hit a MELD of around 10. Right. So 15 is the number, the very important number that qualifies you for um, uh, transplant that's been shown at that, at that, at that number, you know, your, your survival is better with transplant. Uh, so there are some exceptions, however, that will just automatically give you a score of 22. And, and, and Megan, what is that? What is that exception? So the exceptions that give you an automatic score of 22 are hepatocellular carcinoma within the Milan criteria, hyalur cholangiocarcinoma, hepatic artery thrombosis, and hepatopulmonary syndrome. Okay, you mentioned the Milan criteria. What is it? What is that exactly? What are, what's the Milan criteria? So that's where uh, people with hepatocellular carcinoma, if they have one lesion between two to five centimeters two to three lesions that are less than three centimeters or no vascular invasion, they meet the criteria to get um, a hepatic transplant. And so they get their score of 22. Okay, I'm just gonna repeat all this to go over this all real quick again, because this is all highly testable things. So MELD score made up of PTINR, bilirubin, creatinine. 15 is that number uh, that's the cutoff for uh, transplantation. Uh, although there are some exceptions. So hepatocellular carcinoma with Milan criteria, Hyalur cholangiocarcinoma, hepatic artery thrombosis, and hepatopulmonary syndrome, with the Milan criteria being one lesion between two and five, two to three lesions less than three, and no vascular invasion. Perfect. Uh, contraindications to liver transplantation, Kevin. 
So, you know, this is a big surgery they're going to undergo, so they, they have to be somewhat stable. So if they have insufficient cardiopulmonary stability, um, if they are active, have active sepsis, if they have an uncontrolled extrahepatic malignancy, if they're still abusing substances such as alcohol, uh, if they have a lack of social support or a recent intracranial hemorrhage. What about uh, hepatitis? So hepatitis is not an a uh, contraindication. Um, generally, hep C is known to reinfect the new liver allograft, but with new medications that can be controlled. Um, and then hep B, um, you can give the hepatitis B immunoglobin and uh, lamivudine uh, to prevent reinfection. Okay. Um, so let's talk about complications after liver transplantation. So what are some complications that require uh, going back to the operating room? So going back to the operating room, if it's a primary non-function um, and the these are the risk for this is a patient that has a uh, kind of fatty liver or macrosteatosis is a risk factor for this. Post yeah, that's very nice. I've seen that question. Just to stop you real quick. I've seen that question happen a lot. So what is a, a predictor or risk factor for primary non-function? And the answer is uh, macrosteatosis. That, that, that shows up pretty commonly. Sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Other complications requiring take back yeah. to the operating room after liver transplant. So the post-op hemorrhage um, is a obvious complication. Hepatic artery stenosis uh, can generally be treated uh, with a stent, but can potentially need a revision of the anastomosis. And then one of the most dreaded complications is the hepatic artery thrombosis. And what do you do for that? So if it's early hepatic artery thrombosis, uh, you can, you know, fix it if it's identified early, but many times these patients need to be uh, emergently retransplanted. Okay. And what about if it's late? If it's late, uh, generally uh, they'll have, they'll kind of show up with biliary strictures and abscesses due to the lack of blood flow. Um, and so then you can potentially uh, attempt endovascular uh, management of this versus potential retransplant. And okay, that's one so... where I've seen, sorry, I've seen multiple questions about a patient presenting after hepatic transplant with an abscess, and they want you to draw that connection between hepatic artery thrombosis and abscess formation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. There's a few more other or complications out there, Kevin. Yeah. So you can have a portal vein a stenosis or thrombosis. Um, this will generally present early. If it does present early, it'll present with abdominal pain. Um, late, these patients may have upper GI bleed, ascites, um, is another effect of this portal vein thrombosis. The treatment for this, if it's early, you should uh, do a thrombectomy um, and revise the anastomosis. Okay. And then, uh, okay, so you can have a IVC uh, stenosis or thrombosis um, from reimplanting the liver on that, and that can lead to edema, uh, ascites, renal insufficiency. Uh, the treatment for this uh, generally is if it's far enough out from surgery, potentially thrombolytics, um, anticoagulation, and potentially an IVC stent. Um, and then you can have early allograft dysfunction um, in these liver transplants. Okay. Yeah, so those are all the complications that, that may require return to the operating room. And then there are still some more complications that, that can generally be managed non-operatively. Kevin, we're going to stick with you. What, what, are, what are we talking about with those? So the bile leak is the most common complication, and generally this can be managed with placing a percutaneous drain and stent open with an ERCP. Okay. And then cholangitis yeah. is a kind of subsequent complication, and, and these uh, you can treat with antibiotics. 
Yeah, and, and as Megan has said, I, I, the way these typically show up in a in a in a board or a testing scenario is uh, they'll give you the complication, um, or they'll give you how the patient is presenting, um, and they'll ask you what the underlying complication is. With, with most, generally, what they're going for is that is that either that hepatic artery thrombosis, the early versus late. As Megan has said, the patient shows up with with abscesses. They're asking you what's going on. Um, another common one is that bile leak or stricture. Um, so uh, a lot of these questions just have to do with they give you a patient that's post-transplant and they're having a problem and they're asking you what the underlying physiology is. Okay, so let's move on out of liver transplant and we'll move on to a renal transplant. So uh, Megan, uh, how are, with renal transplants, uh, how are these uh, technically, how are they done? So these are most commonly done through a retroperitoneal approach where you attach the donor kidney to the iliac vessels of the recipient. Yeah, so you're, you're putting them in the pelvis, you're reattaching them to the iliac vessels. Um, how about some technical nuances, um, some technical complications that can occur? Uh, what are the most common? So kind of thinking parallel to the liver, you can get renal artery and vein thromboses. Um, so these you would want to diagnose by an ultrasound uh, immediately when you have suspicion. And um, sometimes you may see proteinuria, uh, which would be an indication of a renal vein thrombosis. And then you want to treat this with a, a PTA and stent. You can okay. also get ureteral stenosis and leak from that anastomosis. Um, and urine leak is actually the most common complication after kidney transplant. Um, and the treatment for this is a percutaneous drain and ureteral stenting. And then there's one other complication, which is a lymphocele, um, which usually presents as external compression of the ureter. Um, this most commonly occurs three weeks after transplant, uh, showing up with decreased urine output, hydronephrosis, and fluid collection due to that external compression. Um, and this can also be treated with percutaneous drainage, but sometimes that fails and you need to create a peritoneal window to allow drainage. Great. Okay. Um, you, you touched on this a little bit, but some complications, common complications in the post-op period after a renal transplant. Uh, so you can see oliguria due to acute tubular necrosis. Um, there may be excessive diuresis due to urea and glucose. And then um, some patients may develop diabetes uh, due to the immunosuppressive medications that are used for the renal transplant. Um, so, Kevin, the way I, I see this show up a lot of times on the outside of the boards is um, they'll give you a patient that's post-op from a renal transplant and they're, they're not making urine. Um, and a lot of times I'll ask you, you know, what's the best next step uh, for yeah. evaluation? Um, so yeah. what do you think? So somebody who's in an early post-op period, not making urine from real transplant, what, what do you want to yeah. do? Yeah, this is a stat ultrasound. Uh, this can tell you both if the artery is open, if the vein is open, or if there's some t sort of leak or uh, hydronephrosis presenting. Yeah. So yeah, renal ultrasound is, is a, gives you a lot of information. So again, you can evaluate that renal artery or vein for thrombosis. Um, you can look for a, a urinoma or you can look for a lymphocele that's maybe causing some compression. So in, in generally, uh, that's, that's what they're looking for with that next best step. Um, okay. So we covered liver, we covered uh, kidney. We're going to cover some of the uh, one that you may not have as much familiarity with or see as much, at least I didn't in residency, and that's the pancreas transplant. Uh, so Megan, uh, who uh, is a candidate for pancreas transplantation? 
So most commonly, the people who get pancreas transplantation are those with diabetes um, with renal failure. Okay, yeah, diabetes with renal failure, perfect. Uh, there's three different kinds of renal, of, of, I'm sorry, three different kinds of uh, pancreas transplants. Um, what, what are those big enough? Uh, so you can do a pancreas transplant alone. You can do a pancreas transplant after kidney transplant, or you can do the simultaneous kidney and pancreas. Right, exactly. Uh, Kevin, what's a uh, vascular, you're a vascular surgeon. What types of, uh, what are, what are the arteries and veins you need, uh, for, um, for pancreas transplant? So you need, uh, the donor celiac artery and you also need the SMA, uh, for the arterial supply to, uh, implant into the patient. And you also need the donor portal vein for drainage. Perfect. So you need the donor celiac, SMA, um, and portal vein. Um, what are the different operative methods, Kevin? So uh, they have a couple different ways of uh, implanting these. They can do enteric drained, uh, where the pancreas is, drains in, is, is an asthmos to bowel, and that is how um, you get the pancreatic enzymes. Um, or you can do bladder drained, uh, where they plug the pancreas directly into the bladder. Um, and then uh, you can also do uh, venous drained uh, or portal drainage. What's the most common? Systemic drainage is the most common, but the portal vein drainage has not shown any advantage. Yeah, so most common systemic venous drainage is, is, uh, is, is what happens here with these uh, pancreas transplants. Okay, Kevin, you mentioned uh, some, you know, enteric bladder, um, uh, enteric versus bladder drained. Uh, what's the most common there? Uh, and what's the advantage of that? So most anastomos to the small bowel versus the bladder, the advantage of draining to the bladder is the ability to monitor the amylase in the urine, but this has long-term complications of strictures and leaks. Perfect. Okay. Uh, Megan, when we talk about, you know, what are the different comorbidities associated with the diabetes that can be ameliorated after a pancreas transplantation? So the, a lot of comorbidities with diabetes and renal failure. Uh, so retinopathy, it may not be reversed or improved, but it'll at least stabilize after pancreas transplant. Um, the neuropathy will stabilize and can even improve. Um, pancreas transplant also prote protects kidney transplants from recurrent diabetic nephropathy. So it's renal protective and uh, patients consistently have a benefit in quality of life. The one thing that is not going to get better is the vascular disease, which continues to progress. Okay, great. Um, complications, Megan. So uh, you can get allograft venous thrombosis, which is very difficult to treat, and then rejection. Um, and in pancreas re uh, transplant rejection, you'll see increased glucose or amylase fever, leukocytosis, and it tends to be hard to diagnose if the patient does not have a simultaneous kidney transplant. Okay. And uh, is there a mortality benefit for pancreas transplants or is it uh, purely the quality of life? So the benefit in mortality is when they also have a kidney transplant because the benefit is actually from the kidney transplant. Yep. Yep. So the benefit of mortality is from the kidney transplant. And then we, again, just re 
rehash those comorbidities. So, you know, it'll stabilize uh, retinopathy. Um, it'll stabilize your neuropathy, potentially improve your neuropathy. It, the, the real advantage here, though, is it protects the kidney transplant from recurrent diabetic nephropathy. Um, and uh, again, your, your vascular disease is going to progress. Okay, so uh, we covered liver, we covered kidney, we covered pancreas. Now let's go on to talk about immunosuppression. And of all of transplant, this is probably the most highly tested, most and highest yield. So, um, so Megan, uh, when we talk about rejection, what cell lines are responsible for each type of rejection? What's a treatment? Let's start with hyperacute. So, hyperacute rejection. Tell us a little bit about that. This is something I have to review every year for abscites. I spend a lot of time on it. Um, so hyperacute rejection occurs within minutes to hours, and this is due to that ABO mismatch. Um, so it's the preformed antibodies against the donor lymphocytes, which is also a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Uh, exactly. So uh, let's say this, you know, this happens. What do you see interoperatively? Let's say well, if you're doing a, a kidney transplant and they have a hyperacute re uh, rejection, what's, how's that going to present in, in the OR? So you would see the organ immediately becoming modeled. Um, it'll turn purple, become soft, and then in a kidney transplant, it would demonstrate decreased urine output. And what do you do? What's the treatment? You have to retransplant them, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, retransplantation. So again, these are very highly, uh, very high yield, very highly testable. Hyperacute minutes to hours. It's from an ABO mismatch against preformed antibodies from lymphocytes, um, and it's a type two hypersensitivity reaction. Um, it, it presents intraoperatively modeled purple organ. Uh, you need to retransplant. Okay, Kevin, acute transplant. How does that present? So acute rejection. Uh, this occurs a little more delayed. Uh, this is weeks to about one month out from surgery. Uh, and this is from cytotoxic helper T cells. Okay. Um, how about in the kidney? How does an acute rejection uh, present? So generally, uh, you'll the creatinine will rise uh, approximately one month after the transplant, but your ultrasound uh, will show a normal duplex. Um, it'll have normal inflow and outflow and no lymphocele, but um, the you'll, you'll end up getting a biopsy of the kidney, and that'll show uh, tubulitis, um, and these patients will generally have decreased urine output. Okay, and um, uh, the patients will uh, also, you know, kind of note some tenderness from the graft side. They may have some fevers and general, generalized feelings of just feeling unwell and malaise. Um, and you'll see, again, as you kind of mentioned, uh, elevated serum, creatinine, and uh, leukocytosis uh, can also be seen. Uh, okay, how about uh, acute rejection with a liver? Um, uh, tell me a little bit about that. So once again, this is T-cell mediated, um, and these T-cells are attacking the, the blood vessels in the liver. Uh, so these patients will present with the same kind of fever. They may have jaundice. They may have decreased uh, bile output. Um, and then with your labs, you're going to see a leukocytosis, you're going to see eosinophilia, increased LFTs, and total bilirubin, along with uh, increased PT or INR. And then on the path for this, once you get your liver biopsy, you'll show uh, portal triad uh, lymphocytosis, and then endotheliitis, and then bile duct injury. Okay. And how do you treat these patients? So both for kidneys and livers, acute rejection, which is weeks to a month after, you're going to increase their immunosuppression, uh, generally kind of a 
steroids. Okay. Again, so uh, acute rejection, weeks to month, it's T-cell mediated. Uh, we went over a little bit of how you, what you could see in, in a kidney and a liver. Uh, the treatment is in cute, increased uh, immunosuppression and, uh, and, stero- and um, um, with the addition of steroids. Okay, Megana, so chronic rejection. Uh, how does that present and how, what, is, what is that mediated by? Chronic rejection occurs months to years post-transplantation. This is mediated by both the B and T cells, um, and this eventually leads to graft failure. Um, It is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. Great. So months to years, B and T cell, graft failure, type 4 hypersensitive reaction. Um, What do we see um, with these various organs? So how does it present uh, after a liver transplant? So this is a common question, too, where uh, the patient has disappearing the vanishing bile ducts. Um, you can also see an increase in their ALK-FOS and portal fibrosis. Yeah, exactly. Those disappearing bile ducts. Okay, how about lung? There's a very kind of a path. I'm not going to say pathognomonic, but at least in the test taking it is. Um, what, how does this present um, after lung transplant, uh, especially on board exams? Yeah, so the words to remember, bronchiolitis obliterans. Exactly. uh, Bronchiolitis obliterans after lung transplant, chronic rejection. Um, Treatment. So again, you would increase their immunosuppression, um, but because this has been chronic, they will eventually need a retransplantation. Okay, and then there's uh, something called chronic allograft vasculopathy. Kevin, again, this is a vascular thing, so I'll go back to you. Tell us about that. So this will be a chronic rejection of the blood vessels resulting in fibrosis. Uh, most commonly, it is seen in cardiac transplant patients, and uh, the treatment for this is steroids and eventually retransplant. So... Uh, Let's talk about our natural killer cells. So how do these work? Uh, They identify cells by expression of what? So natural killer cells, um, they use the major histocompatibility complexes. So MHC class one, it's uh, present on all of the nucleated cells. And um, the Binding of the CD8 T cell receptors to MHC class one triggers uh, the APC to undergo death via cell apoptosis. So this is why natural killer cells are associated with um, cell death. Perfect. Uh, So CD8 T cells receptor to the MHC class one and death via apoptosis. I've seen that actually is what is the mechanism of death after uh, this interaction is apoptosis. so natural killer cells are in, actually inhibited by MHC class one. So if a cell does not express that, it will destroy. Uh, it'll be destroyed by the uh, natural killer cells. So this is your in, innate immunity. Uh, so Kevin, we're talking about MHC class one. What are the three MHC class one um, uh, expressions? Uh, so you have uh, HLA-A, HLA-B, and HLA-C. What's an easy way of remembering that? So... One letter for MHC class one versus two letters for class two. Okay. So what are, uh, keep going with that. So MHC class two, what are, what are these? Where are they located? So these are the antigen presenting cells. Uh, This complex presents antigens to the helper T cells that express the CD4 receptor. So binding of the CD4 receptor. Yeah. 
Keep going. So binding of the CD4 receptor to the MHC2 complexes primes the naive helper T cells and polarizes the cell to become either a memory T cell or an effector T cell. Right. And another way I kind of remember that interaction is it should, when you uh, multiply those numbers, it should add up to eight. So MHC class two with CD4, two times four is eight. Um, MHC class one um, with uh, CD8, uh, one times eight is equals eight. Uh, maybe that helps helps you, maybe that doesn't, but it, it helps me. Um, so antigen uh, presenting cells, uh, what do they do and where do they come from? So these bring phagocytized material to the thymus and lymphocytes to assist in cell-mediated immunity. Okay. So we talked about MHC class 1 being HLA, A, B, and C. What is MH, um, um, uh, MHC class 2? What are those HLAs? So it's HLA, DP, DQ, and DR. Okay. So... Um, so the question may say something like, which of these MHC class two molecule, and you'll see the two later, two later HLA. Um, and uh, these are the most important uh, for matching a donor and a recipient. Okay, moving on into uh, immunosuppressive drugs. Again, another very high yield and uh, topic that it, everybody always has to uh, review prior to the outside. So what are the three classes of drugs to prevent rejection, Megana? The three classes are the induction agents, the anti-proliferatives, and then the calcineurin inhibitors. Okay. So tell us a little bit first off about that as induction medications. Uh, when are they used uh, and uh, what, are the, what are the more common induction medications? So the induction agents are used immediately post-operatively to prime the patient. Um, in some of the induction regimens, they actually also deplete T cells, and um, the medications for that are monoclonal antibodies that bind to the IL-2 receptor of the T cells to impair their proliferation. So that is, and pardon my pronunciation, daclizumab and basiliximab. Um, so those are the T cell depleting induction agents. And then in addition, um, patients are typically given steroids for induction. And remember that steroids inhibit IL-1, IL-6, and macrophages. Um, steroids are also used throughout transplantation, both induction, maintenance, and uh, for rejection as we described. Um, and then the other one used is anti-thymocyte globulin. Um, you may have heard this as thymoglobulin, which is a rabbit polyclonal antibody against the T-cell antigens, or the ATGAM or ATGAM, which is an equine polyclonal antibody. Um, and these are against T-cell CD2, CD3, and CD4. Um, so thymoglobulin is used as an induction agent, and it can also be used for acute rejection. Excellent. So, yeah, those are your induction agents. So you have your um, uh, monoclonal antibodies, which uh, you pronounce beautifully. I'm not going to even try to repeat those. Uh, I, have, I have trouble with those. Your steroids and then your uh, anti-thymocyte globulins. Um, uh, again, we're talking under class of induction agents. Uh, Kevin, so uh, the next class is anti-proliferative. Uh, what are our anti-proliferative drugs? How do they work? What are the side effects? Um, Go. So uh, mycophenolate and azathioprine are the main antiproliferative medications. So for mycophenolate, also known as MMF or Cellcept, um, it inhibits de novo purine synthesis, which inhibits growth of T cells. 
there can be many side effects of this. The main one with uh, mycophenolate is GI intolerance. Um, and then you can have myelosuppression, and then you can also have CMV infections. Um, but this is a, a, a good maintenance therapy. And for okay. azathioprine, the mechanism is, is also, it's a purine antagonist, um, and, and that's how it works. Yeah, so anti-proliferative, um, you know, the, the salsept or mycophenolate inhibits de novo purine synthesis, and then azathioprine is a purine antagonist. As Kevin mentioned, uh, side effect uh, most common is a GI intolerance. Okay, Megana, moving back to that third class, those calcineurin inhibitors. Uh, what are our different calcineurin inhibitors and uh, how do they work? I feel like I see these questions most commonly for the immunosuppressives. So there's cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and sirolimus. Cyclosporin binds to the cyclophilin protein that then goes and inhibits calcineurin, which causes a decrease in IL-2 and IL-4. Uh, this is also used as a maintenance immunosuppressive. Uh, but the big thing is the adverse reactions. It causes nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, you get tremors, seizures, and you can even get hemolytic uremic syndrome. Um, and then importantly, this is metabolized in the um, hepatic system and excreted in the bile. Yeah, so Kevin, cyclosporin, uh, hepatic metabolism, biliary excretion, how does this show up on the test? So generally, this would be a kidney transplant patient uh, who presents an acute renal failure after getting a uh, common bile duct exploration with a T-tube. Um, and so their cyclosporin is being drained through the T-tube into their uh, into their bag, um, their T-tube bag. And so they're not getting their uh, immunosuppression. Exactly. And, and that's exactly how this shows up. It's, uh, it's, it's a classic question. And they'll give you somebody who had a kidney transplant uh, previously, and now they've had a T2 placed. Um, they won't even tell you what immunosuppressant they're on. Um, they'll either ask you what's going on, um, or they'll ask you what, 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 what medication were they on. And so it's cyclosporin. It's because of that, that hepatic metabolism and the biliary excretion. Okay, sorry, Megan, I interrupted you. So that's cyclosporin, a calcineurin inhibitor. You mentioned a couple other ones in there. How do they work? So tacrolimus or FK506 or Prograf, uh, this binds the FK binding protein, which then again goes to inhibit the calcineurin protein um, and again inhibits IL-2, IL-4, and interferon gamma. Um, the side effects of this drug is nephrotoxicity, GI symptoms, you can get mood changes or diabetes. And then sirolimus or rapamycin it binds the FK binding protein, which then goes and inhibits mTOR, which blocks IL-2. Um, importantly with this, um, it's not nef nephrotoxic as versus cyclosporin and tacrolimus, um, but the side effect of this drug is interstitial lung disease. Perfect. Okay. Um, so those are your calcineurin inhibitors. Um, so let's work on, move on to uh, infectious complications uh, after transplant. So what are the, Kevin, what are the most common infections? So CMV, the BK virus, and then PCP or pneumocystis carnine pneumonia. Okay. Uh, respectively, how do those three different things uh, present? So CMV, the patients can have flu-like symptoms. They can have hepatitis, uh, nephritis, lymphadenitis, leukopenia, and uh, they may also have pneumonitis and GI symptoms, such as gastritis, colitis, esophagitis, or bleeding peptic ulcers. Okay. 
And, and then for the BK seen after renal transplant, you can they can present with ureteral stenosis and obstruction, and they can also have tubulo interstitial nephritis and a rise in their serum creatinine. And then for the PCP pneumonia, they have hypoxia, dyspnea, and coughing. Uh, the chest X-ray usually is normal, but CT will show diffuse uh, interstitial infiltrates and nodular infiltrates. So how do we prevent these? What are typical prophylaxis regimens given to, to uh, for these different uh, um, uh, for these different pathogens? So for PCP, uh, they're on Bactrim daily for four to six months post transplant or lifelong in some circumstances. For CMV. If they underwent a T-cell depletion during induction, they're going to be on six months of an antiviral. If no T-cell depletion, uh, they can be on just three months of an antiviral. And then uh, for muco to prevent mucocutaneous candida, sometimes they're on oral uh, clotrimazole or nystatin BID. Perfect. Okay. So those are your typical prophylaxis that you give post-transplant uh, to uh, prevent some of those common uh, post-transplant infections. Uh, so let's talk about some uh, long-term. So we'll, we're going to stay with the theme of uh, post-operative long-term complications. Um, so Megan, uh, we touched on this earlier, actually, but first step in evaluating post-operative kidney and liver dysfunction, um, and what are you looking for with each of them? So uh, what's the first step? We mentioned it before. Uh, you have somebody whose kidney's not working or the liver's not working uh, post-op from a transplant. Yeah, so you want to get that ultrasound. Always remember to get the ultrasound as your first step um, because in the kidney, like Kevin had mentioned, you can identify um, the arterial and venous flow. You can identify any fluid collections like a lymphocele or a urine leak and hydronephrosis of the kidney. Similarly, in the liver, you can assess the portal venous flow, the hepatic arterial flow, hepatic venous flow the patency of the IVC, and uh, look for any intraductal biliary dilation. Great. Yeah, exactly. So ultrasound is extremely useful um, in post-kidney and post-liver transplants to, to uh, kind of sort out what exactly is going on. Okay, Kevin, how about delayed graft function? Uh, how does this present uh, after kidney, liver, and pancreas transplant? Delayed graft function in these different organs, how does it present? Yeah, for the kidney, they'll generally present with oliguria, um, or requirement for dialysis within the first week after transplant. And then for the liver, you'll see uh, you'll see AST and ALT increasing, uh, generally greater than 1,500 within 72 hours after the transplant. And then for primary non-function, in the first 24 hours, if the bile is greater than 10 and the bile output decreases to less than 20 cc's per 12 hours, or they've increased INR or PTT, and, uh, and then after 96 hours, they can actually get altered mental status, even further increasing the LFTs, renal failure, respiratory failure. Which And those patients are all headed towards what? Retransplant. Yeah, those patients are all headed towards retransplant. Okay. Uh, pancreas? For pancreas, they're going to have high insulin requirements within the first week after transplant. Okay. Uh, Megan, what's the best test to follow in a liver transplant patient to determine the synthetic function of the liver long-term? So that's going to be your PT or INR. It's the most helpful for liver function. LFTs is a misnomer. So these liver function tests don't actually, uh, so AST, ALT, they don't actually test the synthetic function of the liver. So it's more of a marker of inflammation or cell death. Exactly. So yeah, your liver function tests are not actually your liver function tests. That for your function, you want to go to your INR or PT. Um, your PTT and albumin are also more, uh, also helpful. Um, 
And, uh, you know, bilirubin has too many extrinsic factors to really rely upon as a determinant of liver function. So INR, PT, maybe PTT, maybe albumin to, to test that synthetic function of your liver. Um, Kevin, what is post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or PTLD? So this is related to the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, these patients can present with a small bowel obstruction or mass or adenopathy. Um, and the risk factors for this are some of the immunosuppression that they're on. So if they're on a, a cytolytic drug, such as a thymoglobin, uh, this puts them at higher risk for these Epstein-Barr uh, virus-related problems. Uh, you treat this with immunos further immunosuppression. I'm sorry. You treat this with withdrawal of immunosuppression. Um, and so, and, and maybe switching them over to something like rituximab, um, and they may need chemo or XRT if it is an aggressive form. Perfect. Okay, so that's uh, that's our, our general overview of uh, transplant. Um, let's move on. We'll finish up with our, as always, with our quick hits. So, Kevin, uh, number one, malignancy following any transplant. Common question. Squamous cell skin cancer. Yeah, following any transplant, number one malignancy, squamous cells, and skin cancer. Uh, Megan, a most common uh, cause of mortality after kidney transplant? So, MI. Yeah, uh, MI, mortality after kidney transplant, most common. Kevin, most common reason for um, indication for liver transplants in adults? Hepatitis C. Great. Uh, Megan, a who has power of attorney of a brain-dead patient who has no designated POA, but has a girlfriend, a sister, and mother at the hospital all waiting to make decisions? Uh, so the power of attorney in that situation is going to be the mother. Um, so the order of this is the spouse. Uh, but in this situation, there was no spouse. An adult child also not presented in the situation. Next up would be either parent. And then finally is an adult sibling. Yeah. And it's important to note that the questions uh, are these uh, should always be um, uh, are always allow the procurement agency to make contact uh, to have these discussions. I've seen this question as irritating as it is. This question does show up on the boards. Uh, so you kind of do have to know that hierarchy. Um, and that's exactly how they'll, they'll give it. You have a, a number of different people. You have a girlfriend, you have a, a cousin, you have a, a sister, you have an adult child there who uh, who's able to make that decision. Um, and I've even seen the question, uh, like, who should have that initial uh, conversation? The physician, the nurse, the, um, uh, the procurement agency. So um, those are simple questions to miss. Uh, so just be, make sure you know that stuff. Uh, again, so it's transplants. It's 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 a small proportion of the outside. It's about two percent. But generally, the questions are pretty straightforward. And if you have a general understanding of some of this, you know, transplant, particularly the drugs, the side effects, um, uh, and the uh, post-op complications, uh, you'll be able to pick up those extra two percent, and that'll be the difference between your 80th percentile and your your 98th percentile. So um, so a small proportion, but important. Uh, so I hope everybody's uh, studying is going well. So good luck and dominate the upside.